In the autumn of 2020, Armenia and Azerbaijan fought a 44-day-long war over the disputed territory of Nagorno-Karabakh and its surrounding provinces, leading to thousands of civilian and military casualties, as well as more than 100,000 refugees. Despite a peace agreement, historical grievances, wartime atrocities, and nationalistic rhetoric have spurred continued violence and ethnic hatred between Armenia and Azerbaijan. Welcome to Dissidents and Dictators, a series of conversations by the Human Rights Foundation dedicated to exposing and challenging authoritarianism around the world. My name is Alexander Sikorsky, and I'm a program and policy fellow with the Human Rights Foundation. My guest today is Neil Hauer, a journalist and security analyst based in Yerevan, Armenia. He covered the 2020 war between Armenia and Azerbaijan, and was one of the few international journalists that covered the entire conflict on the ground in Nagorno-Karabakh. Neil's work focuses on politics and conflict in the South Caucasus, Russia's role in the Syrian conflict, and violence and politics in the North Caucasus, particularly in Chechnya and Ingushetia. His writing has appeared in international publications including CNN, The Guardian, and Foreign Policy. He was previously an intelligence analyst for the SecDev Group. Thank you so much for joining us, Neil. It's a pleasure to have you with us here today. Hey, Alex. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, so to start off with, can you briefly explain the roots of the conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan? Okay, that's, uh, that's always a fun question. Briefly explaining this conflict, um, let's say that the short version is, you know, this disputed territory that of Nagorno-Karabakh, a uh, majority ethnic Armenian territory that surrounded largely by ethnic Azeri uh, territories. Um, it was the, the subject of a conflict around the end of World War I, around 1918 to 1920, and then frozen during the Soviet period during which time the ethnically Armenian uh, Nagorno-Karabakh Autonomous Oblast was placed within Soviet Azerbaijan. And towards the, the end of the Soviet Union, as the, the USSR began to collapse and nationalist movements emerged, uh, the, the, pop, the Armenian population of the Karabakh, Karabakh uh, demanded union with the Armenian Soviet Republic. Um, and this uh, you know, spurred bloody reprisals against Armenians and the Azerbaijani Social, Soviet Socialist Republic and as the, the USSR collapsed, it escalated into a full-scale war that lasted from 1991 until 1994. And when the war ended, uh, Armenian forces had secured um, not only the Karabakh Oblast itself, but then the seven surrounding um, Azeri-populated districts of Azerbaijan proper. And that was the situation from 1994 until September 27th of last year when Azerbaijan relaunched a military offensive um, after many years of rearming with their, their newfound oil wealth. And over the course of 44 days, 44 days last year, Azerbaijan conquered or was regained control of following the peace agreement they, uh, about 75% of the territory that our ethnic Armenians had controlled up until then. Okay, and so why did Armenia and Azerbaijan fight a war this last autumn? What was the reason why it, it took so long for the Azerbaijanis to rearm? Um, and was, 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 was there any other reason behind that? Was there a spark that led to conflict um, in autumn 2020? Why, why, did, why didn't it happen earlier? I mean, Azerbaijan spent many years rearming itself, um, especially through the mid-2010s was uh, the peak of their military spending. 
um, until they spent about $15 billion over the course of about 10, 12 years on uh, new weaponry. Um, and there, there were, you know, very, there's always fighting along the line of contact. And then in 2016, there was the so-called four-day war in April that resulted in Azerbaijan making minor territorial gains. But then, you know, Azerbaijan continued to gather its strength. And then last year, um, in July, there was fighting on the, the northern border of Armenia proper in Azerbaijan. And then following that, you know, Turkey started to support Azerbaijan uh, more intensively, especially with uh, their uh, TB2 Bayraktar drones, which changed the, you know, unmanned drones, which changed with precision guided munitions, which changed the balance of power dramatically. And, you know, they began preparing for the war around then. And then, you know, in late September, uh, with much of the world distracted by A, COVID, and B, the U.S. election, uh, a lot of factors just came together to make that an opportune moment to relaunch this war that, you know, that Baku had wanted or the Ilham Aliyev, the president of Azerbaijan, uh, had wanted for some time. And uh, the, 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 all, enough factors converged to make that the, the appropriate timing for them. And so throughout the war, there were numerous reports of humanitarian law violations, including videos portraying the beheading of captives and other abuses against prisoners of war. How widespread do you think that these human rights atrocities were during the conflict? And what do you think motivates them? I mean, I think that they were, that they, they were, they were very widespread, um, primarily conducted, let's be honest, from the Azerbaijani side. Um, you know, Azerbaijan was the one that were advancing and capturing territories and having access to like civilian populations and stuff of most people, of, of the, the few people would stay behind and, you know, the, the Armenian ones were more limited. The Armenia committed war crimes in the conflict as well, too, um, in the form of, you know, uh, shelling cities with ballistic missiles. Um, but that, not to say anything cancels out, but our Azerbaijan also, Azerbaijan as well, did the same thing. They discriminately bombarded population centers um, throughout the entirety of the war. And then, you know, there are number of graphic graphic videos that came out of Azerbaijani soldiers uh, mutilating, executing uh, defenseless civilians or defenseless unarmed, defenseless um, captured combatants. And, you know, reports this continue to come out and to the point where uh, now even over six months after the end of the war, uh, we know Azerbaijan still holds nearly 200 Armenian captives and has executed and in, tortured and executed in custody, at least 19 of them. And so in, in 2004, an Azerbaijani officer, Ramil Safarov, was convicted of murdering an Armenian officer, uh, Gurgen Magarian, with an axe during a NATO-sponsored training event in Hungary. And he was sentenced to life in prison. But in 2012, he was extradited to Azerbaijan, where he was given a hero's welcome, immediately pardoned, promoted, and issued back pay. To what extent do you think this mentality is still present in the leadership of Azerbaijan, especially given their behavior during the 44-day-long the war last autumn? I mean, it's the bedrock of the, the regime, the, this anti-Armenian anti -Armenian sentiment. Um, this has been the, the tool. This is something that came around under um, Ilham Aliyev, especially, uh, who is the son of the former president, uh, Haydar Aliyev. Ilham came into power in 2003. And from the late 2000s especially, you know, they started spreading this extreme anti-Armenian rhetoric uh, you know, portray Armenians as subhuman and the enemy and uh, to, to be destroyed at all costs. And then, you know, the, the Safarov case is one of the most poignant of those where 
this guy who you know murdered the Armenian, the the, the defenseless uh, Armenian officer in his sleep, and you know at his trial was extremely uh, unrepentant and very proud and said, you know, I would have killed as many Armenians as I possibly could have got my hands on, and then returned to Azerbaijan. And yeah, was was pardoned and given the hero's welcome, and so we saw, and that that's the exact sort of act that we saw repeated uh, a number of times during the war. There's videos out there of uh, Azerbaijani soldiers and. The same fashion, you know, where they were used to seeing uh, from ISIS videos in Iraq and Syria, but the difference being that this is a member of a, a state military, a state's armed forces, um, holding down uh, captive uh, Armenians, elderly civ civilians, and cutting their throats. And then we, we see it again in the in the Baku about two less than two months ago, uh, opened the, the the military trophies park in Baku which uh, features helmets from Ar Armenian soldiers killed in the battlefield, which fe features uh, wax caricatures of Armenian soldiers that were the creators uh, proudly state that they made them look as grotesque as possible. And this is the, the entire underpinning of uh, the Aliyah regime is to focus uh, attention on this external enemy and to d deflect uh, attention from the 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 regime's own abuses as one of the lowest human rights, human rights ranking countries on earth, uh, to, to direct it towards the, the, the hated, dehumanized enemy that is the Armenians. So you think that the authoritarian nature of Azerbaijan's government plays a specific role in exacerbating the conflict and sort of spurring ethnic hatred? Yeah, I mean, there's, 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 there's little doubt about that. I mean, like, um, we, we, let, let's not pretend um, in in Armenia that there is particularly positive attitude towards Azerbaijanis either, but it is nowhere near comparable, I don't think, to the, the level of uh, just dehumanizing hatred. I mean, there was no, put it, put it here, the, 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 the slogans that were coming out during the war from Aliyev again and again, and, you know, that were featured on the, the drones and everything, like Iti Kolvan, dog chaser, and Aliyev himself said again and again in speeches, we are chasing them out like dogs, we have crushed them like rats, Armenia is a, is a country of a, a country of slaves, and this, this sort of rhetoric was not present here, and I don't think has ever been present. Um, it's it's just a, a far more visceral degree, you know. It's and it's really the sort of thing that if to the to, to, to outsiders, I think it's it's just shocking. I mean, I remember the reaction to this war museum when it opened up. Um, it was a lot of a, a, you know a, a lot of social media was just aghast at it, including a lot of Turkish social media, you know, which has uh, gen generally a lot, which a lot more sympathy for the Azerbaijani side, but um, a lot of Turkish social media users were just appalled by this. And then for, with, with small exceptions, Azerbaijani social media was, uh, you know, justifying it, um, defending it and, you know, saying, why is it, oh, other, all sorts of countries have, have museums in the world and, you know, they occupied our lands and why is this wrong? So it's the sort of thing that's, you know, it's been inculcated from primary school age uh, for at least the past, let's say, 12 years uh, under Ilham Aliyev. And it's, uh, it really is just, you know, this, this, this sort of thing that even if Aliyev leaves tomorrow, it will take so long to bring these societies towards any sort of, of coexistence, given that this is the notion that's been embedded in, in Azerbaijan. So on that note, what do you think the state of opposition politics is in Azerbaijan? I mean, he's, you know, Aliyev has just won a successful war. He seems to have at least some support for his, you know, for the regime and for the kind of rhetoric that he uses. Is there any prospect for a rise in opposition to Ilham Aliyev? 
I mean, I don't really think so. I'm not an as an Azerbaijani politics expert, but you know, as as I, as I've I've read from you know friends who know much more than me, especially Azeri friends, is that you know the opposition. Like, I mean, that this war was broadly popular in Azerbaijan, and you know, a lot of that is not even just due to the the regime's rhetoric, but you know, the Azerbaijanis have very, have legitimate grievances from the first war. Um, you know, in the process of after Karabakh Oblast itself was secured by Armenia in, in largely in 1992, you know, 1993 was largely the war of conquest, and our, our, our ethnic Armenian forces drove half a million Azeris out of their homes in the surrounding regions, and so there was enough of this, uh, and so these that 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 was around probably 10 percent of the population of Azerbaijan at that time. So you can imagine that's enough to for people in Azerbaijan more broadly to all know someone who was affected by this or you know, to have enough personal experience with this for it to be real for them. And so that, that like, this war was broadly very popular in Azerbaijan. And, you know, this notion of grievance and, you know, taking revenge on our, on our Armenia. And we've seen that with politics in, our, in our Azerbaijan is that, you know, it's very underdeveloped, uh, to, to say the least, because you know, it's, it's an extremely unfree system that famously... In the 2013 elections, they announced the results of the election the day before the vote. Um, but still, you know, the opposition politicians such as they are tried to the regime nationalism in some. There's no, you know, against the war as far as I can tell has not been something that's that's featured in any sort of prominent sense. So it's, I I, I don't think, I, I I'm not an expert on Bajan internal dynamic, but uh, I'm reading what I have. Uh, Neil, you still there? Yeah. Uh, okay, you cut it out for a little so, second, but um, I want to ask you then, you know, talking more about uh, you know, sort of the conflict. What do you think the largest barrier to like a lo- to a long term peace um, is? What what what's in the way of uh, what's in the way of you know the two sides coming together and working out an agreement um, on how to you know how to manage the the conflict? I think um, largely in that you know. Both sides, each side has a completely opposite idea of what peace is. And at least let's state like the, the official positions. And in Armenia, I can say this is the, the majority view here as well. And Azerbaijan, I'm not as sure. Um, but, you know, and for Armenia and for the Armenian population of Karabakh, especially, it's the, the outcome that they, the outcome, and it's about the only one that's acceptable to them is eventually independence for Karabakh and separation from Azerbaijan. And in Azerbaijan, it's, um, you know, integration of Karabakh as part of Azerbaijan and maintaining the territorial integrity. So obviously the two sides are so, those are mutually exclusive positions. And then beyond that, you know, for many years, um, you know, the, 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 the dynamics of this conflict have flipped in a way that's also very toxic as well. You know, um, for many years, not, not at the start, but over the last 10 years, let's say, I think, in Armenia, there's been more of a sense of, you know, we are it, 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 in the early years post-conflict, there was a chance for a real resolution, let's say the first like five, seven years afterwards. But after that, after failed negotiations, positions started to harden to the point where, let's say by about 10 years ago, uh, I, I think there was already at the point here where people would not, most people in Armenia and Karabakh would not have considered giving land for peace, which was always giving some of the occupied territories in exchange for a deal, which was always on the table. And now that situation has flipped, and now Azerbaijan are the uh, are the ones that are, the, you know, the victorious the, the the victorious side, 
and are not inclined to settle whatsoever in, in any sense. And, are, and as, as was revealed in the, the new crisis group report that came out yesterday, you know, detailing some of the uh, behind the scenes negotiations between Russia, I mean, Azerbaijan, is that Azerbaijan is pushing for this absolute maximalist um, outcome, uh, which will just, you know, lead towards that they, they don't want to take any step that doesn't lead towards Karabakh being, uh, coming under their control. And so unless we see some softening of that from Baku now uh, being the victorious side and holding more of the cards, um, then there is, there, there's going to be, you know, until that happens, there's just going to be this absolute deadlock um, until something else, you know, unless there's some other catastrophic change in the internal situation of either country or in the conflict itself. Well, so as a result of the war and this sort of, ensuing political crisis, the president of Armenia, Nikol Pashinyan, called snap elections for the 20th of June, which are in 10 days now. Uh, can you briefly explain who the leading candidates are, what you think the outcome of the elections will be, and how it'll kind of ha- affect um, the Armenian politics? Oh, Lord, this, yeah, this is about, this could be about a 20-minute um, answer here, but I'll try and keep it short. <laughs> so, in short, I mean, uh, so there, there was the, the bloodless revolution here in early 2018 and Nikol Pashinyan came to power and then, you know, won an election in late 2018, uh, affirming his mandate in which he had about, you know, 75% popular approval, extremely high numbers. Um, then the war happened and then went on for about two years. The war happened. Um, he suffered from that quite heavily, but still was in a commanding position over his rivals. Um, and then steadily, you know, since the end of the war, uh, the government has, and especially him himself, have been so erratic and dysfunctional that they have eroded and eroded their support. And that has really come to a head in the, the last six weeks here, the last month, let's say, since the, the start of this border crisis with uh, Azerbaijani troops uh, occupying two small corners of Armenia proper, not Karabakh. And that made the, that has made Pashinyan look extremely weak, and his erratic behavior has that seemingly inventing new scandals of thin air every day has, has continues to harm him. And in the midst of all of this, the the leading candidate from the opposition, uh, the second president Robert Kacharyan, um, has gone up and up in the ratings, which is remarkable because Robert Kacharyan, I would say. Um, prior to this, and probably still, you know, underneath the, the pressing issue of electing someone, he's one of the most hated figures in Armenia. Everyone remembers his rule as, you know, a time of great corruption and lawlessness and um, officials enriching themselves and emigration, people leaving the country because of his rule. And now it looks like it's, it's starting to look as if he's, he is positioned to be the genuine popular choice um, coming to this election uh, if current trends continue as they are, which it's hard to see them changing because every day there's some new insane thing uh, coming out of Nicole's mouth at some campaign rally. And so it's, 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 it's too, too early to call. There's too many undecided people, but it is not trending in a good direction for Pashinyan. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think the long-term sort of cultural and political ramifications of the war and of the loss of the territories surrounding Nagorno-Karabakh will be for Armenia and for Armenians? I mean, it, it, the, the, the number one thing is, you know, sort of this, this absolute shattering of uh, this myth of invincibility that was going on 
um, as one of my favorite analysts, Richard Gergosian calls it the, the bullshit exceptionalism, which was just, you know, this, this attitude that set in over time um, that, you know, we are, we beat the, we beat the Turks once the, as we beat the Azeris once and we'll always beat them because they're weak. We're strong. We are the, we're, we, we're heroic and, and clever and powerful and they're stupid and weak. And that was, and you know, that we'll be able to hold on to everything. And yeah, well, there, there's, there's no way that we'll really lose this war. And that at least it was something that was very much the popular conception and was shattered. And now it's just gone completely in the opposite direction where people are concerned about, you know, losing everything that's left uh, from, you know, there were, especially with these encouragements the last month, but people are concerned about, you know, the future of the Republic of Armenia itself. And understandably, when you look at it in the context of, uh, of, of you know, if, if you consider Armenia and Karabakh, Artsakh, to be, you know, essentially 100 and, 110 years ago, um, before the genocide, and then just after that, uh, Armenians were essentially ethnically cleansed from 80, 85% of the, the territory in which they historically lived, and they don't exist there anymore in Western Armenia, nowadays Eastern Turkey. And so with this this small amount, 15% left, and now more of it just having been captured and cleansed, you can understand why people are, the, are extremely stressed out about what's happening right now. And this has become, uh, yeah, it has become, it's been extremely difficult for people to deal with. So I have a couple more questions for you, but I also want to encourage um, listeners in our audience that if they would like to ask a question, we'll have some time later. And so please indicate, I think you can, there's a button you can press where you can indicate that you would like to speak um, we'll, we'll, we'll let some time at the end for questions. Um, but for, for now, I want to also ask you, you know, we, you mentioned the Armenian genocide and, you know, several months ago, the Biden administration finally, um, made good on its promise and recognized the Armenian genocide. And obviously this caused a big storm in Turkey. Um, but what was the reaction like in Armenia and how do you think that that, has that recognition given some kind of hope to, uh, the, Ar to the, to the Arme to the Armenians that, that maybe the international community will take, their issue more seriously or, or do you think it's just a symbolic gesture? I mean, people were definitely happy with it. Like, let's not say that they, they weren't, people were definitely very pleased with it. And um, yeah, they felt like finally this has happened. Although on the other side, you know, I know, I do know quite a few people who, who said, you know, this is like to do this now after all this time, you know, after it's just this, this tiny sort of, you know, um, tangibly meaningless measure after what happened last year and the U S not saying or doing anything during it uh, really cheapened it for them. Um, so, I mean, of course people were happy that it happened um, and people have been fighting for this for a long time, but at the same time, you know, the, the concerns here are so pressing and especially starting May 12th with the, uh, you know, the border crisis here with the Azerbaijani soldiers occupying the two areas of the Republic of Armenia and just raising the specter that, they might try and take more um, that that has by far overtaken the discourse here. I mean, there's way more. Essentially, that was nice at the moment. But there, but between that and the election, and the two things are very tied together. You know, people have far more pressing concerns. And that is that's basically gone out the window. You know, people that, that hasn't been mentioned for um, since shortly after it happened here, let's say. And so, so far, the, the international community has been relatively silent about the war in Nagorno-Karabakh, especially compared to other conflicts in the region, including the Russian invasion of Georgia in 2008. Um, why do you think that is? Yeah, I mean, it's very much the case. 
And, you know, I sort of, like, there's a few factors that go into this. I mean, one is that it doesn't have this, it's, it's a complicated conflict and you can't just paint it in some, some um, nice, simple way such as, oh, here's Russia and they're clearly the bad guy in Russia. Everyone loves the sexy story about evil Russia. And so we saw, uh, I, I mean, I knew it was different. And then I saw an analysis on the number of New York Times headlines that mentioned the 2008 war when that was happening versus this one. And it was literally 20 times as much, you know, and it was to the, it was, and you know, the coverage in American papers, especially was to the point where, you know, Washington post not only didn't send anyone here, but they didn't commission anything the entire time from the ground for 44 days. Um, and the, the second factor obviously is the, the timing of it. It was during the Trump time during Trump presidency where that anything Trump, says or does ever has to occupy 80% of um, American airwaves. And then it was the election was happening. And then it was also COVID time. And then the first week of the war, Trump got COVID. And so just forget it. That has to, has to be 100% of the coverage all the time. Trump has COVID. And then the, the thirdly is just a more systemic factor is that, you know, the, the media industry is dying. No one has a foot, no one outside of, um, publicly funded entities like the BBC or Radio Free Europe, um, although even those are, are touchy. And no one knows that of those or, you know, New York Times and Washington Post has a sustainable funding model. And so the number of people working in journalism these days, and the amount of, of resources that outlets have is like 15% of what it was in 2008. So, yeah, the industry is just in um, uh, a seemingly endless death spiral. And there, there's hard... And, that's leading to a lot of the available uh, remaining airtime being given to, you know, low cost, quote unquote, reporting on Twitter drama and, you know, internal New York Times Slack chat drama and uh, stuff like this that doesn't cost anything to produce. And so here's all those factors that lead together to, you know, this being a, uh, a blip on the radar, a blip on the night, nighttime news in Europe and just, you know, not even mentioned probably in the U.S. So I know you've also been critical of the way that some of the human rights organizations like Amnesty and Human Rights Watch have covered the region. Um, why do you think it is that, you know, there's there's a kind of blind spot among many international organizations, not just human rights organizations, but as you say, the press in kind of knowledge about this conflict and in covering this conflict? I mean, the press, I think when they were here, you know, uh, the, the ones that came here, I think broadly did a pretty good job. Um, especially given, you know, that this is a very complex conflict and none of these people, almost none of these people have any idea or have been here before or know what's going on. I think the coverage uh, did evolve after the first week or two to a place that was okay. Um, the human rights organizations, I think, were just really bad at their jobs. Like, um, I was just I was just following the same Telegram channels as anyone else, you know, the, let's say maybe eight or ten that were on there that were posting stuff from this war, especially there was like one or two that were posting the really gruesome um, stuff. And every time I would mention something, I would get people from Human Rights Watch and from Amnesty and whatnot, they would message me asking me to, to send them the video. And that just happened, that happened probably six or eight times. So, and I would just think to my, and I, I, I would just think to myself, like, there's like two channels these are appearing on, like, do your job, don't ask me to do it for you. Uh, but that's what happened. And then you, you end up coming out with these um, incomplete reports. They later have to try and explain away uh, in Twitter threads that no one sees because they're not on the report itself. And the report has already come out. 
Um, and yeah, just generally them being bad at their jobs, I think is what it was. Yes, um, I think we have uh, a question from the audience as well. Thank you very much, Neil. Neil, I was wondering, um, like obviously whatever your view on Karabakh is, like there is a pretty sort of clear line between that and the apparent border uh, kind of incursions that have been by Azerbaijani troops over the past uh, few weeks. Like Karabakh is internationally recognised as part of Azerbaijan, like it just is, and so, but obviously Armenian territory proper is not. Um, so like how, how serious are these fears? Like is it actually plausible that Azerbaijan could sort of invade and occupy Armenia proper? Yeah, that's a good question. And I mean, of course, this is something that a lot of people are concerned about and that a lot of people, there's a lot of theories floating around out there and a lot of people worrying about this. My view is that this is really, you know, this is just such a, it, that it's much more simple and mundane than that, that this is just, you know, the if Azerbaijan moving some forces in, whether from command from the top or just, you know, local leeway for the, the local commanders. Um, them moving their forces across the ill-defined borderline um, by a kilometer or two is just a very easy way to cause chaos and cause panic and, you know, just sort of humiliate uh, Nikol Pashinyan, which, as we've seen for Ilham Aliyev, is something that he very much enjoys doing. Um, and then it's sort of like a, a, a successful outcome in itself. Um, I, I, I think that the, the real risk is if, you know, there were to be you know, armed clashes that could turn into something else that could escalate out of control. And then there, that would be uh, on these border areas and then give some pretext for some broader conflict. That would be far more dangerous for Armenia. So they've had to tread really carefully in terms of, you know, um, trying to avoid that while also the, the guarding against, uh, you know, different incursions or, or guarding against Azeri troops moving the lines forward further. And so we've just seen all these videos of fist fights and, things like that happening, which aren't good, but are, are far from that. But at any rate, you know, I don't believe, I, I, I don't buy into these, these theories that are, that are go full around that, you know, yes, Ilham Aliyev does say things like Zangazur, Sunik is ancient, is ancient Azari land. Erevan is ancient Azari land. But I don't think that this is all part of some ploy by which they're just going to go in and conquer uh, half of Armenia. Thanks, Neil. Um, I think we have another question from front, fun from the front. I was wondering, Neil, whether you thought that, uh, given that the war occurred on the Iranian border, and indeed you was visible partially from, from Iran, why Iran does not engage in the region why Iran was not participating? Yeah, it's a funny thing, and that, you know, you would assume that Iran, being one of the three major powers, historical empires that borders this region, would have a big impact on this conflict. And in fact, like the seemingly the exact opposite is true is that Iran has essentially no impact whatsoever. And I think there's a lot of factors for this. You know, Iran has uh, potential domestic concerns hosting both uh, and our, uh, a large ethnic Azeri population that it's always wary of, you know, any sort of pro seemingly pro separatist sentiment. And then a much smaller ethnic Armenian community, but one that Iran likes to hold up as like this sort of model minority that they grant privileges to and show off the, you know, that Iran's a, a harmonious multi-ethnic state. 
And then just more broadly, you know, Iran, it's all its resources are invested in the Middle East and it knows how to deal. It's good at dealing with the sort of states that exist in the Middle East. You know, these sorts of highly dysfunctional states like Syria, Iraq, Lebanon, um, Yemen, where it can ex exert power via these local little proxy militias and that exist outside the state's control and, you know, can, can operate like that. Whereas these are just this is a very different scenario. This isn't. Um, ill-equipped militias fighting each other. This is full-scale full state armies clashing. And, you know, these are functional uh, functional states, unlike uh, Iraq or, or Syria, you know. So that's, it's, it's a completely different environment, and it's one where they're, they're unsuited to. And they, it, it's very hard for, to see how they would have an impact, even if they wanted to. And we've seen that in their, you know, that their, their ceasefire attempt, to, their ceasefire proposals were all just ignored. Their proposals to resolve the conflict were ignored. And they essentially just sat back and watched the, the whole conflict unfold. Thank you. Um, another question from Melon. Uh, hey, Neil. Love your work. Uh, just had a question for you about uh, the future. Uh, so obviously the conflict is sort of frozen at the moment. But what do you think is going to happen in Armenia with the elections coming up and in Azerbaijan as well? I mean, in Armenia, uh, it it'll be it'll be a mess to some degree either way because whichever guy, I, I'm sure the vote itself will not be totally fair. I mean, Pashinyan um, is who controls the Ministry of Resources is really losing it in the last couple of weeks, um, and I do think there will be some there will be some significant irregularities. But at 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 any rate, depends with the result of the election, um, if either Pashinyan wins or the guy isn't going to accept it, and, and they go out in the streets, there's not really at the moment for what to do, what we're going to do in the foreign policy, you know. Well, with the whole wins again, considering that the entire upper staff of the, the foreign ministry, you know, the foreign minister and then all four deputy foreign ministers have all quit in the last week and so who would be the diplomats in his administration and then you know as as well you know Armenia doesn't have there, there's they can, there's not much they can do except negotiate and try and renegotiate the terms um, the will supplement hello Neil you're back yeah sorry I guess the connection it seemed like had connection issues um, do you want to finish the rest of your answer to, to Melon? Um. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was just wrapping up saying that, you know, I think that uh, whatever happens here with the outcome of the election, the foreign policy won't um, vastly change in the short term. Um, we might see, you know, all parties are, are committed to the relationship with Russia. So, you know, that's, uh, Kataria might be a little, you know, probably be a little less um, open to France or the U.S., but you know, broadly, with regards to Karabakh, there's not going to be that much change. Thanks. Um, thank you, Melon, for your question. Uh, Christian, do you have a do you have another question? Yes, I do. First off, Neil, thank you very much for your work. I've been following you for a long time, but as a random nobody, I've noticed a trend among Turkish and Azeri nationalists, especially not just with denial, but also with a lot of whataboutism because the, 
there are certainly legitimate grievances when it comes to the expulsions from Karabakh and Armenia proper, and even going back to World War One, the massacre of Turkish civilians by uh, Russian imperial troops. But uh, none of that takes away from what Armenians have suffered. And I wanted to ask if you had any tips for threading the needle between acknowledging Armenian and Azerbaijani grievances without overriding the other. Yeah, I mean, I don't. That it's. I think it's very, very simple to do both. I mean, and just you could acknowledge both of them, um, and it just it it comes back to that sort of, you know, uh, why do people deny things like this? Because it's more convenient to just to to say that you know our side was the our our side was to believe that your side is the the morally right one, uh, or the morally the morally pure one, the morally clean one, and. Uh, there, there's, there's a lot of different factors that go into this, but, um, I, I, you, you know, it, you, you, you don't have to, uh, like the, deny the genocide in, in order to, um, in order to push you in, in order to, to, to make people aware that, you know, yes, uh, hundred, hundreds of thousands of Azerbaijani civilians were expelled from the areas surrounding Karabakh, or you don't have to, um, de- you don't have to deny that that happened as an Armenian to, to, in order to justify or in order to point out, you know, the pogroms and Sumgite and uh, Ganja and Baku, you know, they, they, these things aren't mutually exclusive. They exist in the same universe. And that's what makes this, con- con- this conflict so complex is that everyone has been victims at different times to different degrees. Sure, absolutely. I mean, there's only one genocide in the course of this conflict. Um, well, in the, in the course of, let's say, the hundred years of things that are more broadly related to this conflict, um, not that, not in the specific context of the Azeri Armenian uh, conflict, but that doesn't mean that uh, you know that massacres. Oh, if only you know uh, five thousand people were killed, or let's say if only twenty thousand people were killed in the the, the March days in in, in um, nineteen eighteen in Baku. You know that doesn't mean that that's oh that that's too small of a number to matter, or that you know. That it, that, it, that it doesn't matter. So it's just it, it's just a matter of a matter of being, you know, cognizant and uh, and, and aware you're wording in these things, but then also admitting what did happen. Thank you. Thanks, Christian. Uh, I think we have one more question from Chris this time. Hi. Yes. First and foremost, Neil, I've been following your work since the start of the war. Very well done journalism. I think you're a very objective voice, so and I appreciate that. Um, my question involves the election and the the political discourse, if I to put it kindly, that's going on in Armenia right now. I'm hearing things about Pashinyan giving up his seat for 20 to 25 POWs and. Uh, the election coming in in either way. Now, in terms of what the result, whether it be Kocharyan or Pashinyan or whoever else, what do you think the for in uh, in any of the outcomes? What how do you think the Azerbaijani government will respond, or, or what would be the ideal outcome of the Armenian election for the Azerbaijani government? Um, I guess for them, it's probably just chaos 
um, yeah, the more chaotic for them, the better. Uh, there is this thing that's going on. There, there is um, something, uh, sort of a meme that uh, supporters of Kacharian like to say is that, oh, he, uh, Aliyev respects him. Aliyev's scared of him because he's this big, strong guy, this classic, like, post-Soviet uh, strongman. And that, you know, if he comes back to power, then he'll, the world is strong negotiating position because Rob is just so big and tough and scary which um, it just sounds ridiculous as you spell it out and especially you know it, no matter who, uh, sorry no matter who wins the election then the Armenia is still in the same position you know having just lost a war recently and suffered devastating uh, military losses in, in the course of that and for Azerbaijan I mean um Maybe Aliyev would somewhat prefer Nicole as like the guy he defeat because the guy who was in power when he defeated him, and he can taunt Nicole endlessly for that as he very much enjoys doing. Um, so, and for a guy like uh, Hader Aliyev, that might be enough. Um, but overall, I, I doubt it matters too much. Just that uh, Baku will be happy to see any sort of chaos and any sort of you know drawn out, um, uh, drawn out disorderly process in here a lot. Thank you. Thank you, Chris and Neil. We're going to have one final question from Kenneth. Hi. Uh, yeah, so my question uh, was with regards to the um, historical presence of a large Kurdish uh, population in Karabakh. I just wanted to know if there's any discourse um, with regard to that fact, if there's any input from the Kurdish community. Yeah, that that is an, an interesting thing. I mean, uh, at this point, it seem, really seems to be much more of a historical footnote kind of thing. You know, it, um, there was, especially in um, you know, Kelbajar and Lachin regions, um, in in the prior to the first war, there was quite a large Kurdish population. Um, there was a short-lived initiative in '92 when the Armenians captured some of these areas to set up a, a Kurdish republic there that fell apart. You know, almost as soon as almost as quickly as it was launched by in, in, in broader discourse. I mean, the, uh, there are the, these Kurdish people will all be IDPs in Azerbaijan um, in, in which they play no role in any public discourse that I can see. I mean, maybe they factor to some degree in an internal matter in Azerbaijan, which I'm not an expert on, but you know, they're not they're not mentioned by uh, Aliyev or the by the Azeri government in statements about, oh, we need to make sure that like we protect Kurdish heritage or that the Kurdish population of the region returned because uh, Azerbaijan makes a big point out of everyone being, you know, just Azerbaijanis. And we are the multi-ethnic uh, as their, their slogan, land of tolerance. Um, and so they make they make a point of not differentiating between different ethnic groups. And so uh, that cuts, you know, any possibility of any. Kurd particular discourse uh, out of the conversation. Uh, thank you very much, Kenneth, for your question. Uh, we're going to end now. So thank you very much, Neil, for joining us. You've been a fantastic guest, and I hope that everyone who's listening, thanks for joining, and I hope you've enjoyed this event. Um, if you'd like to learn more about the Human Rights Foundation and the work we do, please visit our website, hrf.org, um, and follow us on Twitter uh, right here. Um, we will be hosting more events uh, like this where we uh, dive into some you know, other authoritarian regimes and conflicts around the world. Um, and so be sure to follow us. And of course, please follow um, our guest today, Neil Hauer, 
Um, he has the best commentary and analysis um, in the South Caucasus, I think. Um, I'm sure you'll do well out of that. So once again, thank you very much, Neil, for joining us. Thank you for all of our uh, listeners. Uh, have a wonderful day. Thank you so much for having me and thank you everyone for joining us.